Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, philosophers, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Alan Noble. Alan is Assistant Professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University and co-founder and editor-in-chief of Christ and Pop Culture. His writing has appeared in Christianity Today, First Things, The Atlantic, BuzzFeed, and Vox. His new book is Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. We are increasingly addicted to habits and devices that distract and buffer us from substantive reflection and deep engagement with the world. We also live in what Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls a secular age, an age in which all beliefs are equally viable and real transcendence is less and less plausible. Drawing on Taylor's work, Alan Noble describes how these realities shape our thinking and affect our daily lives. Too often, Christians have acquiesced to these trends, and the result has been a church that struggles to disrupt the ingrained patterns of people's lives. Disruptive Witness is a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Alan Noble. Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here and, and chat. So your new book is Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. Disruptive is such an interesting title. Does it characterize your personality at all? Like, There's so many no. adjectives you could use for witness here. I'm wondering like... No, my person. No, no, my, <laughs> I don't. I, I mean, maybe I don't know. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. Uh, so you know, I was trying to, you know, f- find a title that wasn't uh, too cliched. Uh, you know, because the concepts I wanted to talk about, um, they're so easy for people to sort of fit into boxes and then just not really think about them in any serious or meaningful way. And so. I, I, you know, spent time trying to think of a title that would, you know, that that would give people pause to to give a fresh listen, a fresh read to these ideas. And um, I landed on disruptive and I don't know that that was the best, but um, I think it does its job. Yeah, I mean, you can't go with countercultural or faithful. Those are all the, the cliches are pretty easy to come up with. It's it's the originality that's the, the novel that's often hard. So I want to read you something that I think gets at the problem you're identifying. And you tell me if it, if it hits the mark yeah. or not. This is from Sean Kelly. It was written, I think, in 2010. He's the chair of philosophy department at Harvard. And he t- he's asking what a self-deceiving sort of life looks like, right, in modernity. He says, take the case of religion, for example. One can imagine a happy suburban member of a religious congregation who, in addition to finding fulfillment for herself in her lofty and ennobling religious pursuits, experiences the aspiration of this kind of fulfillment as one demanded of all other human beings as well. Indeed, one can imagine that that kind of fulfillment she experiences through her own religious commitments depends upon her experiencing those commitments as universal, and therefore depends upon her experiencing those people not living in the fold of her church as somehow living depleted or unfulfilled lives. I suppose this is not an impossible case, but if this is the kind of fulfillment one achieves through one's happy suburban religious pursuit, then in our culture today it is self-deception at best and fanaticism at worst. For it stands in constant tension with the demand in the culture to recognize that that those who don't share your religious commitments might nevertheless be living admirable lives. There is therefore a kind of happiness in a suburban life like this, but its continuation depends upon deceiving oneself about the role that any kind of religious commitment can now play in grounding the meanings for a life. Uh, That's fascinating. So... I, uh, this work is heavily based on, uh, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor's, um, argument in his 800 page tome, A Secular Age. And in that. And your front notes indicate that you've read it. It's a book many people quote, but like no one has read. (laughs) (laughs) I, and I encourage people not to read it. Like I think Jamie Smith's, um, How Not to Be Secular is a great, um, you know, summary application. I, I just want to note here, we have an English professor saying, stay away from the primary sources, go to the secondary yeah. source. <laughs> Cause here's, what's going to happen. Like 
you're gonna Smith is uh, Jamie Smith's book is hard enough, and for for I think the vast majority of let's say pastors, you know, uh, and and you know, and most lay people, but 800 pages, man, you're gonna pick that book up and you're gonna start it, and you're gonna, you're gonna be like, this is this is too much, and then you're gonna feel like a failure. It's just it's poorly edited. I mean, it's it's a beast. It's a monster. Um, anyway, so so he talks about secularism as. Um, you know, the, the state where uh, you are hyper aware that there are always other possibilities. So, for example, you know, I was I was raised in the church. I was raised in that suburban type home. And um, I always knew that I didn't have to be Christian. You know, I could be um, any number of other belief systems. There were always other options out there for me. Um, and uh so I guess, I but, would, but there, there's uh, something else too, right? Because the the early church comes up in a pre-modern kind of pluralism, but uh-huh. without what you, Taylor talks about, and you call the imminent frame, right? It, the, the, with the early church, it knows there are other options, but it seems to ground reality its members more on things outside on a transcend trans, uh, transcendent horizon rather than I guess the difference between our situation and the situation the early, the church emerged in is not the pluralism it's the sort of it's, self is the center of meaning and, and judgment right right yeah absolutely yeah so you know in the first century you had lots of different you know you could join a mystery religion or you know you could worship the Greek gods or whatever but you always for for most people there was an acceptance that this world was had some transcendent frame of reference of, of some kind um and that's one of the big differences but but you're right that that pluralism is sort of similar to the conditions of the early church um there are lots of different options available to people and and you think about like okay pharaoh versus moses where you have a sense of like dueling gods one of the mm-hmm. things that you point out in your in your book is that this sort of internal framing and the sort of pluralism and the kind of you talk about thick and thin beliefs that these real deep sort of embedded existential embodied intellectual beliefs versus the kind of beliefs that are more like preferences they all get confused and so nobody really thinks uh, or oftentimes when we're engaged in some sort of debate religious debate nobody thinks this is like Moses versus Pharaoh two two pantheons <laughs> colliding it's just sort of two different sort of ways of framing reality and we're going back and forth to see which one works best and tweaking here tweaking there and hopefully we do it with some civility on a good day that's right yeah and and a lot of it has to do with just sort of expressing our identity and so we uh when we make choices to accept or believe things um today we often do so based on whether or not we feel like it fits our identity so like this this isn't this just isn't me. Christianity just isn't me. So like I, I don't feel like I can do this. Which is, you know, is why there's lots of different sort of, you know, uh liturgical styles to fit, you know, you know, church that, that fits that fits me. And that's that is absolutely part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah, and you say that, you know, we have this sort of being a Christian today in the late modern West, you've got this the problem of, you know, you got what Weber calls right the iron cage of modernity. You got you got the secularism, the pluralism. You also have, you know, the the driven being driven constantly to distraction by technology. And you sort of you put that stuff together and you you say that it, it offers sort of three big challenges to to any kind of deep sort of religious commitment but you know especially to christians first it's easier to ignore you say contradictions and flaws in our basic beliefs right like uh you know like uh, what does emerson say foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of the narrow mind we might call it out right. any consistency is the hobgoblin <laughs> of, 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 right. of, of the distraction um the second is we're le- we're we're less likely to devote time to introspection, right? Because we, we're constantly able to be distracted. My wife said when she for- got her first iPhone, she thought, "I'll never be bored again." <laughs> <laughs> and and the third reality, right, is conversations about faith can easily be perceived. So we we're just saying it's just another exercise in superficial identity formation. Like, does it work for yeah. you? Does it work for me? And so all these things combine to kind of make this picture of what Kelly, I think, points is this trivialized kind of modern Christian faith. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, I, and I do think that that um, a lot of these things have to do with um Consumer capitalism uh, shapes a lot of this, and that's not necessarily a knock on capitalism. I think it's just a reality that um, the way the habits we have is, you know, Jamie Smith would say the habits, the practices that we have of of, of selecting things, we're we're primed to think 
think that you know our uh, central goal is to um, make choices and uh, exercise our preferences. And so when you combine that, um, it, it, it when you combine that with, I'm sorry. I just lost my train of thought. Uh, when you combine that with uh, distraction, technology of distraction, uh, it does create a condition where it's it's hard to have, I think, earnest conversations about faith where things are, are risked and people are willing to actually change beliefs and alter their lives accordingly. Um, that's the problem I'm trying to identify. Yeah, you have this great phrase in that opening chapter you say that so this, these modern conditions really mitigate cognitive dissonance and, and, and the brain doesn't like cognitive dissonance anyway, right? Which is why we often have, you know, what's, what is it's rationalization? Right? What is uh, uh, in the big chill, Jeffrey Goldblum's character says human beings can get through a day without food or sex, but can't get through a day without a good rationalization. And like, and, 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 and these kind of cultural factors yeah. you're, you're, you're talking about are like steroids for the rationalization uh, power, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So um, it's just, so, so part of this book, when, when I was inspired to write it, you know, I'm coming out of this background, um, you know, very much out of sort of the Francis Schaeffer presuppositionalist sort of school of thought. And I'm thinking a lot about how people I know argue and model arguing about faith. And there is so much this emphasis upon, on, on identifying contradictions and and sort of exposing those contradictions. And I, and I think that has a place. But what I found myself realizing is I'm not sure that a lot of modern people care. Like, okay, if you expose, if if you show me that my, you know, humanist atheism uh, is, you know, irrational because I don't have a reason for being kind to someone. So what? Like, I, I can, it, it just, I don't feel like in, in 2018, um, people have that that overwhelming sense that they need to live out a coherent worldview. There are so many things to dis- to to occupy us, to enchant us, to distract us. Um, there are also so many other brilliant people out there. It kind of feels like, well, if I don't have it figured out, I'm sure somebody else does, and I have more work to do. I've got long hours in my job, so I'm just going to get back to work. Yeah, and, and what you're identifying here, it's not like, say, what Chesterton says in his great book, Orthodoxy, that, you know, the pre-modern man would rather have two truths in tension rather than settle for a half-truth. You're talking about just dismissing the feeling of the two truths in tension. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think our modern world is very well designed to um, to allow us to just dismiss those two truths. And I think the church, I think this happens in the church just as just as much as the secular world, too, I'd, I'd like to point out. Now, you have sold big screen TVs in your life, and you knew, <laughs> and you knew a warlock, and it was at the same time. Right? I mean, he told this great story about a, a, a warlock who yeah. was, interestingly, the best adolescent salesperson, you know, the, all these sort of late teen guys are selling electronics equipment, I assume it's like a Best Buy or something like that. And he was the best at this. And yeah, you're kind of like, you're, you're kind of like, well, you're a warlock. This is absurd. He's like, uh, you have this guy like, I'm not a witch. I'm a warlock. And it's, <laughs> but you realize like, if what you, re- you tell you, say the book, what you realize is like, okay, it, it seemed to us like, okay, he's got this weird constructed identity, but you realize you all had weird constructed identities, some yes. religious, some non-religious, some jock, some goth, but everybody, you realize he was kind of a mirror that showed you the constructed nature of your own self. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it, it's interesting. And I think um, we see these sort of, these people in, in the margins of society. We're like, wow, those people are weird. The internet has made this a lot easier in a number of ways. We'll see people who are into very niche uh, subcultures. And we'll think, gosh, what, you know, this gaming subculture or this, you know, plant, uh, home plant subculture, this is, you know, these people are freaks. But but there isn't. Um, uh, but what I talk about in the book is that, you know, the fact that uh, when you reflect on this, this is what we're all doing to some extent. We're all sort of uh, looking inside ourselves, deciding what kind of an identity that we want to have. And then we're working hard to express that identity. And um, and of course, this has ramifications for how we understand uh, belief, because if on some level we all accept that we're crafting our own identity, then um, it, it's uh, 
then the stakes for belief drop dramatically because it's not about whether or not that 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 faith that belief is is true or not it's whether it works sort of with the character that you're designing yeah and that, that's scary yeah and that is and that you you're kind of critical of this sort of approach to sharing the faith right that it's it's almost therapeutic look it's not so much this is true but look at how this works right that that oftentimes the and this is kind of i guess what william plaker the mainline theologian calls you know the 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 domestication of transcendence right we kind of turn Mm -hmm. transcendence into something that's another consumer good right absolutely and and there's some tension here because i think showing the beauty of gospel is can be very powerful and uh very moving and um and it can and it can be rightly done i think it is pointing to to transcendence as as opposed to um accept this faith because it will um you know improve your life this is a big concern that i have and I, and i do think it goes into this this idea of of you know everyone's building their own identity and then what happens is we come along and we say hey uh you should add christianity onto your identity like this is going to be good flair for your life because christianity is really beneficial your kids will be happier you'll have a sense of morality you'll have a, a, a a community you should join our church it's going to improve your lifestyle and my concern is that, um, and this goes back to that quote that you read at sort of the beginning of the show uh, from that professor who said that, you know, the lady in this suburbs thinks that all her friends don't have, or non-Christian friends don't have fulfilling lives. Well, in 2018, I mean, you know what, you can live a pretty pleasurable life um, not being a Christian. Like you could, I mean, there are lots of fun and interesting and, and satisfying things you can do. That that doesn't mean that Christianity is not true. It, it just means that You've got lots of options. And so we have to present the gospel in a way that acknowledges, you know, that other people, non-Christians, might be living happy lives. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that, yeah, I mean, now we think, you know, most evangelicals are saying, hey, you could not just be not a Christian, but you could be sort of the antithesis of what has traditionally been seen as Christian morality and be president of the United States and do a great job. (laughs) In fact, in fact, 76% of evangelical Christians didn't think that was possible uh, when Obama was president. Now 77% think it's definitely possible. (laughs) Hey, if you, you can pay off porn stars, if you give us judges and tax cuts. That's right. Absolutely. Tax cuts. Look, low unemployment covers a multitude of sins politically, unfortunately. It's interesting. As I was reading that part of the book, I was thinking Chesterton, though, does seem almost, if you look at his book, Orthodoxy, Mm. like 90% of the book is almost a therapeutic argument. I mean, he only really gets into the truth of Christianity at the end. Most of it is sort of talking about dispelling myths, right? Like, well, if people say it's too too violent or too pacifist, well, both these can't be right. Like... He does actually present it as a, a sort of a, maybe almost an imminent framing or so until now he does at the end pull out the transcendent card. I mean, I, I wonder, is there a room for some of that? Like you talk about beauty. I mean, is, is there a way to sort of contextualize our approach to communicating what, you know, many religious people say, hey, this is a stream of living water. I mean, this is a way of real yeah. meaning without domesticating it to a consumer good. Right. That's, and that's a fine line that we have to walk. I don't, I don't think it's easy to do, but I think, it's, I think it's necessary, right? Christ says life and life abundantly. So there is a sense in which you know, Christianity, following Christ, does mean uh, a, a more f- flourishing life, at least rightly understood, because we are becoming, we are growing in Christ-likeness. Um, so, yeah, I, th- I think we have to be able to talk about um, the way following Christianity, uh, following Christ, um, does improve our lives. The, I think the danger is, I, I think we need to be aware of ways in which we've unconsciously adopted language um, to frame our faith. So, you know, and I think this happens a lot. Like, are, are we presenting Christianity as, you know, you know, the faith that is going to be, is it, it, you know, new and improved? Um, or is this uh, beautiful because it is the truth? And, and I think there are ways when you're talking about the, you know, sort of therapeutic, you know, the benefits, um, to, to, 
you know, to point those back, to tie those to the transcendent aspects. And, and I would say that that's probably a, a good um, approach to doing um, witness, bearing witness. It's really interesting. You know, you talk again about this, this thick and thin beliefs and how these things get all kind of jumbled in a way. And then you have this like thing. It's, it's sometimes I'm reading this book and thinking, gosh, this guy is just trying to antagonize like all the people in evangelical Protestant higher education. Cause you, you, you really <laughs> take worldview studies to task in, in yeah. a way that I think is insightful and, and, and rings totally true that uh, oftentimes the way, you know, the way conservative Protestants or evangelicals, and it's largely in this camp are taught to, to engage plurality or alien particularity to people that are have different sets of beliefs and from different sort of communities in late modernity is is to sort of look at their worldview and you're like look people are not just sort of you know they're not what descartes thought we might be you know if there's no yeah. physical world they're not just like gaseous thinking substances in a jar or something that that people are embodied and you know i love you say so you could talk about marx's worldview which has to do with his you know, how he related to his parents and the language yeah. he spoke. With but you can't tell Marxism as a worldview because it's just too, uh, it's too umbrella. It's too ethereal. It's too, it's not embodied enough and doesn't take yeah. into account how it's not just ideas, but practices and, and psychology and, and social location, all these things that actually shape how a person indwells and thinks about the world. Right. And I, and I think, and I make this sort of caveat to, to cover my butt a, a little bit and say that, you know, sort of the best worldview thinkers, you know, try to acknowledge all these, these criticisms and, and circumvent them. But, you know, I was homeschooled. I grew up in the evangelical church. And um, in my opinion, like by the time worldview studies trickles down to, you know, lay people, the version that we get is a, a version that says, uh, here's a chart. Um, so here are, you know, six categories of, uh, ideas and here are, you know, five major worldviews and here's how, what they believe about each of these, you know, things. Here's what they believe about creation and here's what they believe about the government and here's what they think about, you know, uh, you know, human anthropology or whatever. And, and then you get into all these sort of false bizarre situations where you know you meet someone and you're like oh so you're you're a, a humanist so this is what you must mean you know this is what you must believe and it's like not even remotely true um and and i think that's particularly a problem because what we talked about earlier because people do have these thin beliefs and so you know people take a little bit of marxism and a, a little bit of this and a little bit of that and it's and it's fluid too we're all picking this up and ideas and setting them down and so approaching i i, I worry that approaching um evangelism and apologetics through a worldview lens has way too much of a of a sort of rationalist model for human life um and and thinking and it's just not it's just not the way you know it works in circles um but like and and, and maybe if you go and debate uh, you know uh daniel dennett or something but outside of that it's just not that's just not how people work yeah and doesn't in those kind of approaches it, it seems like the form overwhelms the content so you kind of have these categories and everything's got to be ramrodded even if a buddhist uh from tibet wouldn't uh, why why is it creation why is this a sort of the, i wouldn't really right. i could spend three hours talking about my approach to life and the word creation would never come up but now you've got a, one of the five categories is something that they couldn't <laughs> conceptualize right right that seems to be a problem then yeah absolutely yeah and that's why you know I, I I tried to say that uh, and, and and you gave the you know the example I give of Marx you know worldviews they are a real thing but they are tied to each of our uh, personhoods so we we each do have a worldview and it is fluid but it also it includes literally everything we've experienced like our our childhood our um, you know um, every everything um, and once we move. Once we decide, well, worldview is actually this belief system that we have. It's like, well, that it 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 just doesn't work. And so you'll have these conversations with people, and you'll be talking you'll be talking past each other. So no, I I, I don't think it's you know, 
I think talking, obviously talking about ideologies, I, I think talking about belief systems is very helpful. I mean, I think humanism is a thing. I think Marxism is a thing. It has many branches, and I think those things should be taught. But, um, but, but approaching it um, as if there were uh, – these were coherent worldviews that people actually walk around believing is, um, I, I just think, confused. You, you know, your book is sort of divided into sort of conveniently into sort of part one, which is the problem, right? Like here's the here's the existential kind of dilemma, yep. and, and part two is the disruptive part of how how witness will kind of on a personal level, a church level, and it and a cultural level will be disruptive if it's faithful. But at the end of the sort of identifying the problem of you know the late modern self, you talk about you have this great phrase that really the experience of living in the modern world is the sense that we've been thrown back on ourselves. And authenticity oh. becomes a central narrative of the contemporary. We, we you know we got to self-actualize. You say the, the quest for authenticity assumes that we will discover our authentic self if we only turn inward, dig deep enough, face our monsters and adequately express what we find. Do you find that this is why the the Serial dramas now are amoral in the sense of traditionally and more morality tales around authenticity and discovering, you know, like uh, a true sense of self, a fitting mm-hmm. sense of self. So you look at like Breaking Bad, right? Like you kind of hate Walt's yeah. brother-in-law, the cop in the beginning, and you love him at yeah. the end. He's still a cop, yeah. but he seems self-deluded in the beginning and he seems existentially present at the end. That's why Tony Soprano, this mobster, you, at times you can feel sympathy for him because, oh, he's self-aware and other times you don't. So oftentimes it's the, an, the anti-hero, right, becomes our who we love because they're on – it's not the, it's not whether they make all the good or bad moral choices. It's, it's whether they're finding themselves – authentically or deluding themselves. And so we like to sort of distance ourselves from the delusional characters and identify with those who are authentic. That's a fascinating thesis. One that I have to sit with for a while. I mean, so, um, yeah, because I mean, at the, at the end, Walter is delusional, right? Like his, his dream has uh, overtaken him and he seems to be lost uh, in the power of his own dream. I think arguably at least. Um, but, but by the end we don't identify with him, right? Like by the very end of the show, we're just kind of like, so maybe you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Cause I think he's least authentic toward the end. I mean, I think that he's wrestling with all the complexities yeah. and all the, you know, and, and at the end he's, he's, he's deluded again. He's, you know, he's coming out of the delusion and through all these weird, uh, you know, through the heroin, through the making of the math and all these crazy, you know, again, far from moral adventures. But there's a sense in which he's grappling with, you know, the whole leading a life of quiet desperation and and and, yeah. and taking some agency instead of letting life happen to him. But then by the end, he becomes a, a passive again to his own delusion. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that that final shot. Um, this this sense of of, of hopelessness uh, um, that 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 his dream is just right out of reach. He's surrounded by it, but it's all meaninglessness. Um, a very Ecclesiastes sort of concluding uh, shot. Um, yeah, that's that's fascinating. Now, I have you. I haven't finished Madman. Madman, but have you? Do you know if that model would fit with that one? I have to say, I haven't even started it, but I would bet. Okay, I would bet everything in my pocket versus everything in your pocket. <laughs> the thesis salts up because you think. I mean, what doesn't it hold up for? It's Game of Thrones. It works. For, like I could yeah. just go through all the big serial dramas and think about. Generally, this is true that they're not. You know, it's interesting. You know, uh, there was there's this great podcast called uh, Imaginary Worlds. It's all about the imaginary worlds we construct and and you know what they say about us. They did a whole episode on like Looney Tunes backgrounds once, but they talk about alignment Whoa. and how in Dungeons and Dragons you had this like three alignments: you're either good, neutral, evil, and yeah. and lawful, neutral, or chaotic. And how like a guy like Batman was kind of chaotic good. You know, you can have certain. Uh, villains that are lawful evil they put, they obey the rules even though they're they're malevolent and he was saying what's interesting is that is that it's not good versus hero versus villain that's as interesting as hero versus hero like superman v batman or iron man versus captain america and the authenticity of their own commitments that this kind of stuff even even in even in eye cocaine thin blockbuster things which is only the only reason people go to the theaters anywhere even that stuff is imbibing some of this <laughs> 
Absolutely. Yeah. So I teach uh, contemporary literature. That's sort of my field of, of, of study. And um, so that that heavily influenced, you know, a lot of a lot of this book, because as I'm reading contemporary, um, especially contemporary American literature, there's this this overwhelming pattern where, you know, the the thing that that characters, the sort of problem that they are trying to overcome, the conflict is the, the self. Like they want to be to live an authentic self. They don't know who who they are or who they ought to be. And their quest is, you know, against their their own demons and against particularly like the forces of society and culture <clears throat> that are sort of working against them to to discover who they are and live in some right and and real sense. There's also this anxiety about reality, about whether we're we're real, if, whether this is reality. So I do think, and and of course, so you haven't watched Mad Men. I've watched like half of the series, um, and I sort of gave up because it felt a little redundant. But um, it, it's absolutely about. I mean, because you know the main character is not who he who he uh, claims to be. Um, so um, absolutely, figuring out who you are and living authentic to that, um, it is sort of the major um, hero's journey. I think of of our time. Yeah, and this is why somebody like James Joyce, right, calls his book Ulysses because it's like, damn it, that one day in the life of a sort of late modern Irishman is just as epic as anybody in ancient Greece, right? <laughs> I, I'm on yeah. just as much of a quest, like as you know. There's this kind of you, you see that that is the late yeah. modern epic. Yeah, yeah, right. So I mean, once we lose grounding uh, in community and tradition and um, and place. Uh, once we lose those things, the individual becomes sort of this free floating entity that's, that's up, up for grabs. And so and there's a, and there's a real, and it, this isn't just like a philosophical problem. Like from, for, for most people, this is an embodied problem. Like we have, I think real psychological, um, I don't want to say trauma. I think that, that this probably usually too far, but, but, um, uh, maladies because we don't know who we are. And, um, I mean, we have sort of a national identity crisis. Um, that's just the, the normal state of being a modern person is a perpetual state of identity crisis. Alan, we had a crisis. America is great again. Okay. <laughs> crisis averted. Problem solved. North Korea. Sleep well. Yeah. Tax cuts. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? If the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or more? It's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going and you can help launch several other podcasts projects i've got in the works so i invite you to be a patron through patreon of this which i think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy again any contribution is welcome but for five bucks a month you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call which begins right now thank you david babico ellis brazil david zoll sari graham peter steigerwald Samantha Blythe, David Norling, Charlotte Donlin, Barry Stewart, Larry Rule, Stephen Lipless, John Schneider, Ben Crosby, Liam O'Brien, Jim Cress, Stephen Rowe, Ben DeHart, Jordan Morseberger, Josh Redder, Jennifer Underwood, Kai Whitpenig, Simone Garabedian, Samantha Konauer, and Jim Kirk. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening. And now back to the show. I want to move on in a second to talk a little bit about, again, that sort of part two of the book, the, const yeah. the constructive sort of witness in the midst of it. But, you know, I, oftentimes analysis analysis of the contemporary moment, late modernity, post modernity, whatever you call it, it comes uh, comes as dark, right? And, and this is not uncommon. I mean, tale. I mean, this is just, unless you're, 
uh, 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 who's, you know, the enlightenment, yay, kind of, uh, you know, I mean, most people, you know, there, there's a kind of, yeah, right. you know, uh, but this is, I want to read you something from Tom, Tomas Halik, who's a Czech priest. Um, yeah. And a psychoanalyst. I don't know if you know his work at all, but it's very, very interesting. Uh, he came up in the Iron Curtain, became a, Ch- Charles Taylor taught him in underground seminary. Oh, um, wow. And he says this in a book called I Want You to Be on the God of Love. Young mentions somewhere the indigenous tribe of primitives still living an ancient way of life reconciled with nature and original human nature distinguished between small, private dreams and big dreams that are of significance for the entire tribe. I've always thought of Nietzsche's scene with the herald of God's death in the gay science as the record of a dream, but a big dream with prophetic significance for our entire tribe. At the same time, I felt that the message God is dead is only the first sentence, which must be followed by another, a second sentence, in the same way that Good Friday was an important message just from God, but not the final one. God is dead. That sentence uttered at the end of the 19th century continued to fascinate for the next hundred years. Maybe it was only a sentence about God and against God, but also one containing something of God's message to us. A God who has not endured death is not truly living. A faith that does not undergo Good Friday cannot attain the fullness of Easter. Crises of faith, both personal and in the histories of culture, are an important part of the history of faith, of our communication with God, who is concealed and returns again to those who do not stop waiting for the unique and eternal word to speak to them once more. Mm. I think of that line that these crises of faith, personal and in the history of cultures, are part of the story of death and resurrection. I wonder, I think like, the modernity is not often characterized as that kind of Holy Saturday. It's often characterized, you know, not even as Good Friday or something. You know, it's often categorized as something so alien to the story of God's works and ways with his people. I mean, I wonder, because so much of, of, of what you're arguing for is, is a sort of baptized imagination, right? A sort of, mm-hmm. I, I wonder if, if even someone like Taylor's critique is in need of deeper baptismal waters to see it as part of uh, a continuing cycle of d- death and resurrection. So the idea there would be that, that there's some beauty, some hope. Um, but there's a way of seeing this current crisis, the, these problems that we've discussed, as um, as hopeful specifically in the sense that they do lead to a resurrection. And in this case, it would be sort of a, a resurrection of, of faith within the church, a resurrection of a more embodied faith, uh, a, a faith that recognizes both our embodiment and the reality of transcendence. Um, is, is that is that yeah, 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 I, yeah. I think, I think of like, if we look at the richness of the Christian story and oftentimes that, that, that cataclysmic, events and 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 change i mean you know we wouldn't yeah we wouldn't be where we are today without the sort of post-apocalyptic feeling of the late antiquity that gives birth to the benedictines and things like this there, right. there, there's beauty that comes out of ashes the seed you know has to fall into the ground to perish consistently yeah that's it that is an interesting uh, that's and so i sit here and, and i'm thinking about this and, I, and i'm wondering okay well why don't i and most people you know think in these sort of positive sort of hopeful terms. And I guess the answer would be, it's your Myers-Briggs. <laughs> it's your personality <laughs> no, test. No, anagram. Enneagram. Bananagrams. I love yeah, the Enneagram. I, I want to say yeah. I'm a complete Enneagram devotee. Yeah. I mean, most people are. Yeah. Uh, but so, are you saying I'm part of the herd? That's bad. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I just like to make fun of it as, as a cult. Cause the thing looks like a pentagram. So I can't. It's that homeschool, like '90s uh, uh, Satan worship uh, scare that's still in me. Are we talking know? Gothard? Are we talking Gothard? Gothard uh, movement? I, I wasn't like directly influenced by Gothard, but you know, like if you're in the homeschool movement in '90s, like part of you know, or the fun or fundamentalist churches, you know, that was just you got to watch out for Satanism. It's all over. The- um, my wife, my wife really worked damning, in a, my is, my wife worked in an orphanage in Moscow that was run by the Gothardites, and she he spent Christmas there, and she brought him his Coca Cola, like, and he that was the only day he wore not a suit, he wore like a red sweater and like a turtleneck. So he was my wife seen Gothard in his casual clothes, and she brought him a Coke. Yeah, yeah. So it's her fault. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It's his fault for most of everything, but uh, yeah, yeah. L- literally, yeah. Um, no, so the, the the damning thing is that I think uh, I, I don't uh, sort of automatically think of this in sort of hopeful terms because 
I have anxiety about the resurrection, I guess, of the church, right? So I'm, um, instead of being optimistic, like, hey, you know, we're going through a crisis now, there's going to be some growth that's going to happen. Um, I, I probably from a lack of faith, um, you know, worry, like, what is going to happen? I'm skeptical that, that you know, that the church is going to heed these sort of calls and, and mature, uh, and that's probably not in uh, reflecting right now on a podcast. Uh, so thanks for calling me out. I feel, you know, uh, that that's not an appropriate stance for me to have. Well, it's interesting too. Halik is a guy that is in a different place where he's been behind the Iron Curtain and seen it. I mean, he last yeah. Easter, he baptized 34 adults in, Czechless, mm. in the Czech Republic. Uh, and he finds real. He finds the Czech Republic a really fertile ground. He's a university professor and priest at this sort of. He's like a parish rector, a Roman Catholic priest, and he's just yeah. It's, it's but I mean I think but he's also been through the crucible further ahead of where yeah. we've been. I mean, which is why I think he's a sort of really help been a helpful theologian and missiologist for me. Um, so on to part two. So uh, you we've so modernity creates. We've you know the first part of your book does a great job with using. Taylor and other sources of, you know, mapping out how, gosh, we're distracted, we're caught in these relativisms that I love the phrase you say, micro justifications. We've always we have all this existential weight on ourselves to tell ourselves, like, my life's meaningful, my life's meaningful, my life's meaningful. Yeah. And and you talk about what the church has witnessed in the midst of this. You say three things. One, personally, you have this great idea of a double movement where you're, you're more attuned to the beauty around you. And then that beauty around you, the grace around you, uh, on everyday things, you know, these can be normally normal, mundane beauties. Off, wake you up to the transcendent source of them, and and there's this sort of cyclical grace and gratitude that really changes the way daily that life is experienced. It's not just like one damn thing after another, but really becomes right. it can become a thing of of, of reception and, and and thanking and thanksgiving. So I was trying to, th- this second section was really hard. I had to rewrite it last, last summer. Um, um, you know, obviously it's, it's always easier to write the, <laughs> the critique than it is to offer, you know, hope and a way out. Right. Um, and this, I, I think this, the challenge that I'm describing here felt particularly hard because these are like societal wide, these are deeply ingrained, uh, forces that I'm talking about. And, um, you know, unless I'm going to advocate that we, you know, shut down all technology, like it, 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 there's no there's no silver bullet here. It's just it doesn't exist. And so it was difficult to write this. And so I tried to come up with something that I, that I felt was that I that I decided was sort of fundamental to um, resisting both distraction and um, sort of this secular idea, this, this, this eminent frame. And, and I think it it had to be something that that was habitual, right? Because it's not good enough. And most, I mean, if you talk to Christians, you know, they're going to say, oh yeah, I believe that, you know, a God exists who is, um, you know, beyond this eminent world, um, you know, but it's, it's that daily belief. It's that, 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 ingrained belief that I think most of us are lacking. And so what I decided was that, that we need to think in terms of, you know, what I sort of cornally called the, this double movement, where when we see um, beauty, when we see also tragedy, that we don't stop with the of our, if I think the imminent problem is that when we see something and we stop at the object itself and we don't take that second step and connect it to the transcendent source in God. So when it's a case of, of beauty, we, we look upward and thank God when it's, a, when it's a case of tragedy, you know, we, we, we petition to God for help. Um, and I think if we have that sort of, you know, we're called to pray constantly. If we have that sort of habit, um, that seems to me like a powerful way to resist the eminent frame uh, or at least the clo- what Taylor calls the closed eminent frame, where there's not really a possibility of transcendence. Uh, and it also requires us to be reflective, which is something that distraction works against, right? If we have habits of being reflective, that, that's going to resist distraction. Yeah, it's interesting because you talk about in the book how, how everything is, we interpret experience to give meaning to our lives. And you say even selflessness becomes selfish, because if you're doing something selfless, you're thinking, hey, 
how selfless am I being right now? Am I looking good? Am I one to yeah. 10 on selfless? Okay. Right. If 10's Mother Teresa, you know, and, you know, two is Donald Trump, what am I? Am I, am I a yeah. sort of, uh, you know, am I a celebrity at a, at a telethon? What am I? And it's interesting. I had a guy on the podcast, Mark Mattis, who wrote a book on Luther's theology of beauty. And he was saying, you know, Luther thinks, he, Luther's famous for saying, our works are, are not for God, they're for our neighbor. And that until you know that God is your, justifies you and accepts you, then you'll never really love your neighbor because you're you're always just using your neighbor to sort of self-justify yourself. Yeah. Same thing he yeah. says with beauty for Luther. It's a, it, when you see the beauty of the cross, then you're free to see all the beauty around you in, in the simple thing, mm. as opposed to you're the aesthete who's again using beauty as a micro justification. I oh I got the yeah. I you know I figured out. Bruce Willis was dead in the sixth sense way earlier than anybody else. Or look at my experience <laughs> going through the Barnes Museum. I, I get the placement of the, of the art. But, you know, those things are just a, a more arduous, imminent framing to sort of feel better, right? right? Like where, whereas the cycle you're talking about actually frees you to be receptive because you don't have to sort of construct anything to justify yourself. And it gets you out of your head. Uh, and, and so this is, so, so I think some, you know, and this speaking of personality types, I think this breaks down sort of by, by personality types, but also, you know, sort of life experiences. So there's some people who, when um, they see something beautiful, they want to work to, to get it to justify themselves. Um, you know, just, you know, following the examples you gave, but um, for, for other people, there's this sense of anxiety about whether or not they're being authentic. Right. And this goes back to the authentic self, you know, so you you look at something beautiful and then you start to be anxious and you're like, did I make this? Did I write this song just to impress people and, 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 and create this image and be cool? Or did I write this song because I really mean those lyrics? And then and I think you get into this authenticity trap where you're just constantly questioning and questioning. Uh, and, and here, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, J.D. Salinger's fantastic book, uh, Franny and Zooey, which in my mind is just, you know, the, the case study of this authenticity trap where you, you know, you want to, uh, in, in the case of Franny, the character Franny, you want to pray constantly. You want to have this one spot in your life where you're being authentic and real and honest. And so she f ends up getting in the fetal position on the couch um, and, and she's unable to move. And she has to learn that she actually has to be other directed. She has to be pointing outside of herself in order for her to live and move. And so I think, I think the double movement is a way of both combating this sort of micro justification, all the fear of, of failure, of being inauthentic, because instead of when you see something beautiful, instead of being like, well, am I, am I reacting properly? Am I, you know, instead you point upward to God, um, your, 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 energy is outward instead of inward. And I think that's, that's important for, for many of us. Yeah. It's interesting because you talk a lot in the book about the buffered self. And I mean, there are some scholars and we could, I mean, we could argue whether or not this is excessive, but would say like somebody like Augustine in his confessions invents something like the inner self. Right. And, and, and yeah. in antiquity, you re could read Homer a lot without this attention to detail of this great internal. Now we can't think we couldn't get through a day without thinking about our inner self versus the self people see. Well, now it's like we have the inner self, the outer self, and then the buffered cultivated self, right? This sort of yeah. in out back, you know, so part of what you're talking about is something that that's kind of shrinks down the buffered self, right? So that more can get in. Right. And I think, so the, the buffered self, you know, this idea that, that we are, <clears throat> um, you know, we are rational, um, sort of uh, yeah, buffered beings that exist in our heads. And uh, we sort of choose transcendent things to bring into us as opposed to uh, living in a, instead of imagining ourselves as porous selves where, you know, God and the Holy Spirit and, you know, all kinds of things can, can affect us personally. So the buffered self, as Taylor understand, it's, understands it, is not, it's not the way we actually are, right? It's the way we imagine ourselves. And so I do think that um, this idea of recognizing something in our lives like beauty or tragedy and then um, recognizing its transcendent significance is a way of acknowledging that we are, that we are not the center of the universe, that we are not wholly rational creatures 
that, that decide when God is interacting with us that actually we're living in God's world. Um, and so I would hope that's a way of, of, of sort of poking at the cracks of our own imagined buffered selves. Um, that, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you, you also talk about the disruptive practices in the church and, you know, we're in a modern world and we need more embodiment. So you basically think we need bigger screens, smoke machines, and better bands. I think (laughs) every church, that's right. Every church needs, uh, an ad for the sermon series that runs, um, you know, at the beginning and then, you know, one, an advertisement for the, for the next sermon series (laughs) at the end. (laughs) If you don't have, if you don't have Ads, how are people going to know why they search? Um, ads for men's groups. Um, yeah, we need more of that. Um, yeah, so this section of the book, the second chapter in the sort of, I'm going to try to help us problem section, um, is about disruptive church practices. And, and you know, I found myself just sort of echoing Jamie Smith and just saying, hey, um, traditional church liturgy is good. Let's embrace that. There's a reason we have it. Um but trying to but but trying to slow down and say okay here's here's why these things are important um, and um, yeah so I've been wrestling with this um, a, a lot lately because in Oklahoma there's a sort of local megachurch that's that is very much focused on using the tools created in the secular uh, consumer marketplace and just using those to draw to draw people in. And I always struggle with these things because, uh, you know, my parents were, came to Christ watching Kenneth Copeland on TBN or whatever. And, um, that's why I'm a Christian. And, and so I have this weight of acknowledging that people who I believe are, are, are heretics, um, can, you know, God can work through them. Right. And so certainly, you know, if God can work through, 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 heretics, he can certainly work through uh, churches that use smoke machines and have um, worship music that is in, uh, you, it, you know, on different, it completely um, the same as a, as a concert. That, how how far know, are we taking this? Prayer Jabez, Jim Baker, food kits? How far do we go? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but that's the thing is like, I don't, I mean, you know, based on my parents' experience, I mean, I, so here's what I do. So, you know, Paul in Philippians, uh, you know, chapter one, he's got all these people going around preaching the gospel from selfish ambition. And uh, he does two things that I and I love. And this is the model that that I use and advocate. On the one hand, these people are preaching Christ, not because they love Christ and believe that he's the truth, but they're doing it because they want a following. So he calls them out like he publicly calls them out and says, these men are preaching Christ for, out of selfish ambition. That's that's damning. Right. But then he also says, but if they're preaching Christ, I, you know, I praise God that they're preaching Christ. And so I think I think we have to be able to acknowledge God's sovereign and he can work through, um, you know, worship services that are essentially TED Talks with concerts tied to them and uh, are filled with commercials and all these sorts of things. That Look, a lot, of, a lot of people are, that are listening are thinking, oh, God, that my church would only be a TED Talk with a concert. <laughs> <laughs> that would be a step up. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's part of the challenge for a lot of pastors is that we are to, you know, certain movies, movies. We, you know, um, TED talks are, uh, you know, uh, uh, self-help talks are a lot more in- entertaining than than sermons. Um, and maybe this is the curmudgeonly professor in me, but but you know, my response is, but that's that's a problem on our end, not not a problem with the sermon. Yeah, and then, so you you know you you the church practices. You think that there's powerful ways that we can find ourselves in a transcendent story with traditional liturgies. And then you talk, you know, in the context of personal disruptive witness practices embedded in the church that you, you then say in the cultural participation, finding where there's cross pressures. And I think this is really one of my favorite sections of the book where you're talking about analyzing where everyone's feeling the dissonance and you're going there non imperialistically or you're not, I love how you say, look, you know, here's not how to engage the culture. Don't just go, <laughs> don't just go looking for Christological allegories, right? Or to point out where this is moral and this isn't. Go finding, like, go looking for fellow travelers who are experiencing the same 
cross pressures of, of of looking to find meaning, you know, in 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 a context where that's difficult in the, in our current context, and and you know, be a fellow traveler as well as a witness, and I think that is you you. Use the the Great Gatsby beautifully, and then also in the epilogue, you talk about the power of the post apocalyptic novel, The Road. And some of this, I mean, just from those two examples, you can think you can tell comes out of my experiences teaching. And so I'm teaching at a you know I teach at Oklahoma Baptist University, so these are almost all uh, believers or evangelicals, and uh, most of them have been raised in the church. But we'll read these contemporary novels where people are struggling with things like identity and authenticity, and um, and living in it in a, in a consumer world that is just overwhelming with its choices and options and thinness. And and my students resonate with a lot of it. You know, at least the better novels, they'll they'll you know tell me like, "Patch novel, you know, I I feel this." So, um, in particular, you know, we will read uh, Sylvia Plath's *The Bell Jar*, and um, my students, there's there's this powerful scene in *The Bell Jar* where the main character imagines herself uh, thinking about all her life choices that she could do. She could become a poet. She could become a professor or a mother. Thing. She imagines herself sitting at the bottom of this uh, fig tree, and all the figs are life choices, and she just sits at the bottom of the fig tree until all the figs rot and fall to the ground, and she dies because she she's overwhelmed with the options in modernity. And my students, who are Christian, right, and so they have answers. They should know career options, career choices don't justify your existence, but they also live in a modern world. And in that modern world, they are told that actually career choices do determine whether or not your, your life matters. And so they read that and, and they feel it. And so, uh, and I think in, in good literature, good film, good music, this is what you're going to find is that if Christians are honest, they're not going to approach it and say, wow, man, it sucks to be Sylvia Plath. I'm glad I have Jesus. And um, that's not my problem. I think most of us, if we're honest and we empathize with the literature, we will be exactly what you said, fellow travelers. We'll realize that even though um, Christ has saved us, there are ways in which we experience some of these same challenges as our non-Christian neighbors. And that allows us to... Uh, you know, to come alongside them and talk to them about our faith. So I want to go back to our to our suburban woman who I who I read from Sean Kelly's piece in the New York Times about. Uh, so he, you, and Kelly would be on the same page in identifying part of the problem: this late modern kind of tendency or nihilism and the plurality, the distraction. He looks not to Christianity but to Melville and Moby Dick and. And Melville said quite specifically, I mean, you know, I'm a polytheist. I mean, he was he was really open about that. And he summarizes Melville uh, this way. He says, the new possibility that Melville hoped for, therefore, is a life that steers happily between two dangers. The monotheistic aspiration to universal validity, which leads to a culture of fanaticism and self-deceit. And the atheistic descent into nihilism, which leads to a culture of purposelessness and angst. To give a name to Melville's new poss possibility, a name with an appropriately rich range of historical resonances, we could call it polytheism. Not every life is worth living from the polyistic point, polytheistic point of view. There are lots of lives that don't inspire one's admiration, but there are nevertheless many different lives of worth, and there's no single principle or source or meaning in virtue of which one properly admires them all. And then he goes on to say, the death of God in Melville's inspiring picture leads not to a culture overtaken by meaningless, but to a culture directed by a rich sense for many new possibilities and incommensurate meanings. Such a nation would have to be highly culture, cultured and poetical, according to Melville. Would have to take seriously, in other words, its sense of itself as growing out of a rich history that needs to be preserved and celebrated, but also a history that needs to be reappropriated for an even richer future. And of course, Ishmael is kind of his non nihilistic, you know, person who navigates in between worlds. And so, how like how do you respond as someone who is a monotheistic with with a transcendental point of view centered in Jesus Christ to to that alternative to to that escape to nihilism? that Kelly is using Melville for? How would you respond? Right. Yeah. So then I guess what I would do is I would, um, I would like to explore what, what he practically means by um, polytheism. So there's, you know, 
when Melville's talking about the white whale, um, there's a sense that that what the white whale represents is some transcendent being, existence, reality that um, is within this world, but is also beyond this world. I mean, they would um, kind of, these guys would say it's onto theology. It, what later people call onto it's it, it's true for the capital T. This sort of monotheistic sort of it's the Judeo-Christian fuse of the Platonism Western. It's that that sort of yeah. thing that 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 were truth of the capital T transcendence meaning that thing's going to make you Ahab, right? And I guess um, so. <clears throat> I'm not convinced that. Um, so let me. I'm going to answer that question. Um, in <clears throat> in the contemporary era, there are. Um, we feel in uh, what Charles Taylor calls these cross pressures. And um, I think modern people have to have some sort of sense of the transcendent in their lives. They're going to look for it somewhere, but they have to have some sort of sense of it. There are lots of different ways to do this. But let me give you an interesting example of how this works out for in, in literature. Um, in uh, the, there's just great by uh, Marmon Silco, a Native American writer. Uh, she writes this book called Ceremony. And uh, it's about uh, a Native American who, who went, a Pueblo Indian who uh, fought in World War II, comes back with PTSD, and uh, tries to integrate back into his uh, Pueblo uh, culture community, but he can't there's this again it's a crisis of authenticity of identity and really he has to uh come to accept in some ways traditional um pueblo uh religious beliefs and he has this sort of transcendent experience he meets this um this this spirit on this mountain and he's healed from his his trauma and he can move forward um it's a really great story. Hmm. Now, uh, that's in like the 1970s. 1950s, we have Graham Greene who writes this fantastic book, The End of the Affair. Have you, have you read The End of the Affair? I haven't. I know Graham Greene's okay. work, but I haven't read that one. It's, it's maybe his best. So, <clears throat> but critics don't, critics are really bothered by it because at the very end of the novel, even though the novel's about, you know, coming to belief in God, the very end of the novel, Graham Greene actually uses a miracle. And that's actually part of the reason why, a, you know, a, a, a character comes to faith is because of a miracle that happens. And so critics read this novel and, um, they, many critics read it and said, this isn't okay, because what you're doing is you're saying, you're asking the reader to believe in, there, there has to be some other possibilities. You've got to, you've got to have some naturalistic explanation. So if we want to believe it was God who intervened, that's fine. But if it wasn't, then that's fine too. But you can't have an actual miracle in, in a novel in 1950. It just, it doesn't, it's too hard for readers. Um, and what I'm the argument I'm describing is like in the introduction to one of the most in, to one of the editions of of the end of the affair. So what's fascinating to me is in 1950, as these critics are responding to Graham Greene, they're saying you can't impose this capital T truth even in even in this novel. Like we can't hold. Um, you know, we can't even suspend our dis disbelief as non-Christians and say this is possible in the world of your novel, Graham Greene. But when critics read Ceremony, this Native American story in 1970, critics don't react that way. As far as I know, there's no critic who read that and wrote, I'm sorry, this story about a Native American finding healing through his traditional religion is unbelievable because, you know, we live in a modern world. All right. So this is a long to get to get my answer, how I would respond to that. So I think that the critics who read Ceremony and don't have a problem with that ending aren't actually polytheists. They don't actually believe that that Native American religion is satisfying. Uh, you know, the, the critics who read that don't think, I want to um, actually adopt this belief. I think that this belief system is true about the nature of the world. Um I think there's actually a kind of I think it's kind of condescending sort of um, sort of wink, wink. Oh, this is this is uh, this is isn't this quaint, this this Native American belief system. Uh, we're not going to criticize it, but we don't actually think it's a real thing. Whereas when they read Graham Greene with Christianity, they assumed because we live in the West that Graham Greene thought this truth was actually applicable for them too. question. 
I would wonder if the, the person who's arguing for a kind of polytheistic approach, I would wonder if they really see that polytheism as um, multiple live options of fulfillment, or if um, they, they actually think of it more like the critics think of religion and ceremony, which is uh, it's, it's a quaint lifestyle option, um, but we don't actually think it has anything to do with us. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because Kelly and his mentor, Herbert Dreyfus, who's now of blessed memory, but they wrote a book called All Things Shining, Reading the Classics in a Secular Age. And they, they try to avoid what you're talking about. But I, I don't know that, you know, we could one could argue about whether they avoid it successfully, but it, but they, they do try to have this kind of principled polytheism. But uh, it, it's, it's interesting because it's a book that tries to grapple with the world that uh, Taylor is describing and that you do so well, you describe so well and offer a really interesting and helpful picture of creative Christian engagement with it. I mean, if people are struggling with these issues, I could think of no better place to start than your book, Disruptive Witness. Alan, thanks for writing it and for, for taking some time to talk with me about it. Thank you. It's been a wonderful time. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you like what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email. Or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Alan for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.